Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, or welcome back if you're a regular. My name's Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And of course, on Crime Time, I interview authors. My guest today is William Boyle. He goes by Bill. And we'll be chatting about his latest Brooklyn noir, Shoot the Moonlight Out. It's out on the 24th of March and is published by No Exit Press in the UK. Boyle has created an incredible ensemble of damaged characters and their lives are set to collide in many tragic ways. The only question is, is there redemption at the end of this story, at least for some of the characters? Of course, you'll have to read the book to find that out. But Boyle discusses the book here and the films and the music and the books that actually influence his writing. This is his fifth Brooklyn set novel and it's possibly his finest. So let's hear what Bill has to say about Shoot the Moonlight Out. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Bill. Hey, nice to see you, Paul. Thanks. Nice, lovely to have you. Um, how's life in Oxford, Mississippi at the moment, then? I saw the other night you had a, a book launch for Eli Cranor's um, Don't Know Tough. That's good. You know, it's um, it's been the last couple of years has, has been uh, different and a lot, you know, pretty much just kind of hauled up and not doing mm-hmm. um, the stuff that, you know, really makes Oxford special like, like that, you know, the, the events at square books and um, it's something I've really missed the last couple of years. So it was nice to, nice to be back out and, and doing something like that. Eli's book is great. And, you know, Ace, Ace Atkins was there and Chris Offit was there and Lee Durkee and a bunch of, bunch of, great writers and pals um so it was it was nice and uh, nice to remember you know what what's so special about oxford yeah well that's interesting because i think a lot of people who don't know oxford won't know how big the writing community is there but you mentioned a few writers there melissa ginsburg as well tom franklin michael yeah, farris smith i mean is it do you feed off that or yeah obviously it would have been less so in under covid but you know does that sort of work as a community it does. I mean, it's been, you know, it's been very important to me. I've been here for, you know, quite a while now, over a decade. And um, I mean, I think that was uh, the push I needed as a writer, um, mm. you know, was was being around around these people who were, you know, great writers, great people and, you know, working, doing doing their work and, you know, showing me how to how to be as a writer and how to be as a person really you know um so that was a, a huge had a huge impact on me my friend jack pendarvis another mm. another great um great writer who lives here you mentioned tom franklin yeah melissa and michael ferris smith and um so many so many folks and not to mention the folks who you know ha- have passed through and spent some time here uh, megan abbott you know yeah, a good right, friend yeah. of mine and we got to be good friends when she was here as a visiting writer for a year and um so that yeah i definitely feed off of that and and I'm very inspired by by that and, you know ace ace and and um megan and jack and uh in particular have just had a huge impact on me as you know just that's kind of been a a, a core group that i can always ask questions to uh, you know and um just they just kind of inspire me with their their work and their way of, uh, of you know being fans of other people's yeah. work and it's great you can feed off of that 
I mean, you're a long way from Brooklyn these days. But obviously, <laughs> you've made your home and you're comfortable here. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know. Brooklyn still feels like home to me. It's a really strange thing um, mm-hmm. to have been here for so long. I never intended to stay here for this long. And we just kind of yeah. kept thinking we were leaving and we kept staying. And, and there was just enough between, you know, between the writing community and square books and, and the, the great record store in town where I worked for a while, you know, it was just enough stuff that I really felt at home here, but you know, it also never quite feels like home in the way that right. Brooklyn feels like home. Um, so my, you know, I still have my, I'm, I'm back there a lot and my family's there, my wife's family's there and that, that kind of will always be home, but, also, you know, I drifted away from it in a pretty significant way in the last decade plus. Yeah, it'd be interesting to dig into that a little bit. I wanted to start with a couple of general questions first, though, um, before we yeah. talk about Shoot the Moonlight Out. Uh, you've drawn a lot of influences from music, from movies, from books. And, um, well, you reference them very directly in the books. And I know that they were sort of an escape for you in your early life. You started on some dark stuff real early, in fact. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I, I try, sometimes I puzzle about how I, I kind of came to that stuff. Um, I think, you know, I think it was just kind of a natural progression. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't like what I was reading in school, yeah. you know, but I love to read. And so of course, Stephen King, you know, was probably one of the first writers that I really, you know, read and kind of fell in love with those books and fell into mm-hmm. them. And and then there was a natural progression from from Stephen King to um, Ed McBain and and then Jim Thompson. You know, I think uh, probably people don't think about when they think about Stephen King, maybe they don't think about um, Jim Thompson, but mm-hmm. Stephen King's a huge Jim Thompson fan and, you know, and talked about it often. So that's probably one of the ways I kind of fell into reading Jim Thompson by the time I was 12. And, mm. and, you know, also I think I loved movies from a young age and I was kind of always just renting whatever I could and taking chances. And, you know, I wasn't reading about anything. I was just going to the video store and, and trying things out. And so when I started seeing David Lynch movies and, and I was really drawn to that. Um, and then I also, you know, growing up in the late eighties, early nineties, it was just this, this prime period of neo-noir yeah, yeah, and that stuff kind of just drew me in right away. Um, so, you know, movies, I mean, Jim Thompson adaptations like The Grifters and After Dark, My Sweet, movies like Red Rock West. And I did, there was, it just kind of all gets muddled in my mind now. I don't really remember what the order of things was necessarily, but I know that I saw The Grifters and then I read the book. Uh, mm. you know, I fell hard for Jim Thompson. And eventually I, I started reading Elmore Leonard and I started reading James Elroy. Um, so, yeah, by the time I was in junior high school really i was reading reading that stuff and um you know kind of blowing off what i was supposed to be reading for school and and just really going hard at, at that stuff it's mind it's mind opening stuff though isn't it it's stuff that when you watch it you suddenly think wow that's another door you know it you is can, yeah 
I mean, and I'll never forget. I mean, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to a movie now, but I'll never forget seeing Blue Velvet for the first time mm-hmm. because I was tw- I was 12. Right. And I, I watched it on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and then I went to church with my my family after that. And it was just kind of like the world was one way before that movie. And yeah, the world yeah. was another way after that movie. And I just kind of never came back from that from that. So is it when you're writing your novels? Is it like a conversation with your cultural world? The kind of stuff you grew up on and absorbed? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think um part of the part of the joy of it for me too is kind of not knowing necessarily. I mean, there's the there's the stuff that's kind of always there, the stuff that's influenced me in some hmm. major way that I think, you know, I'm always kind of drawing on. But I also love that you know, stuff I'm encountering as I'm working might, might find its way into the book. You know I mean? Um, stuff I'm hearing for the first time or stuff I'm returning to for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, and just that, that, that kind of, um, often provides some kind of jolt of energy to, to the work that maybe mm. I wasn't expecting. And that, that I always find really fun, but I do feel like I am kind of in conversation with a lot of that um that stuff that i've that i've loved that's that's shaped me yeah yeah definitely no you can feel that in the writing i wonder is it more about noir sensibilities than it is about crime sensibilities in a sense because i think a lot of people have come to kind of think that noir is a subgenre, and i mean the french don't look at it that way at all for instance but it's yeah. not a subgenre; it's a whole other thing on top of that i mean is that the way you see it for instance i think you can see a lot of noir in music. Yeah. Like oh, yeah, yeah. Like maybe Springsteen's Nebraska, you know, something like that. You've got a noir sensibility. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I totally feel that. I always feel that noir is kind of a yeah, um, atmospheric thing. Uh, a, um, I don't know. I get, I get really bored with very, very strict definitions of, mm-hmm. of what noir is. And I, I think for me, it, it always has felt like a sensibility or you know an atmospheric kind of energy that hangs over the work but i I think you're right i mean i think like nico case for instance i've always thought of as a you know kind of country noir yeah um you know musician singer and and there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of stuff to me that fits that uh fits that bill yeah just something it's just occurred to me recently you know looking back on the kind of um noir fiction and the pulp fiction it seems to me that an awful lot of it feels political. I mean, political with a small p. And I kind of didn't notice that when I was reading it sort of growing up, you know. Um, I mean, we call it, we tend to talk about a lot about social commentary these days. But, I, you know, I get stuff from Starkhouse Press, for instance, these days, novels written in the 1930s. And they're as raw and as passionate about issues, you know, as you could possibly yeah. imagine. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about the iniquity of society or about the inequality. I'm just wondering, is that the way you see it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's something that drew me in early on to um, a lot of those writers. I mean, you know, uh, Thompson, Goodis, and and Williford are are three three big ones for yeah. me, and they're they're all kind of you know you feel that in all their work, even if they're not out you know out and out political and um, what they're saying. There's there's a a sense that this is kind of like a, a cry from the lower depths or, you know, uh, this is, these are desperate people painted into desperate situations. And, and that's a result of, you know, 
society or 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 whatever um yeah. so yeah i mean i think that that drew me in uh, immediately and i think a lot of the the 30s stuff can feel really radical in that way and a lot of the 50s stuff that's that's rooted in you know paranoia and fear mm-hmm. and displacement all feels that way um and certainly is is um something that that uh, appealed to me uh, early on you know they're, they're all often you know it's all about outsiders and people who are kind of mm. on the ropes. Um, and that, that in, is kind of inherently political, I think. Yeah. It's also well, it's where the interest is though, isn't it? We don't want to read about people who are sitting down to breakfast, having tea and yeah. having their bacon <laughs> and eggs. You know, it's not, it's not exciting. It's the edges that we like. It just yeah. something else that cropped up when we were talking about the idea of you putting books and things in, into your book, you know, you mentioned film titles and that one you mentioned was love affair in this book and it's not a noir no but uh funnily enough it's a film i've just seen recently and that's yeah. for the first time you know and I, I loved it actually i have to say oh i love that movie yeah curious to look at it in the context of the time though you know when you look back on these things now you tend to think about that in a way perhaps you didn't in the past and uh, one of the things is the empire state building you know and this this iconic thing you know what it's almost become a trope hasn't it this idea of meeting up at, well it has become a trope meeting yeah. up at the Empire State Building. But, of course, we're going back to a film that was done, you know, what, 10 years after the, the Empire State Building was built. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that that kind of... I mean, I, part of what I love about that is that, that kind of mythology of of the city and the way it hangs over everything. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... A, it's I, I, I love the feeling of how that hovers over what i'm working on for sure yeah and i mean i love uh leo mccary is one of my favorite directors so mm. um that's that's another thing i love you know about about his movies is there's obviously i write about kind of um catholic characters and this in this mm-hmm. you know predominantly or what was predominantly kind of italian american neighborhood and um and i think that's something that draws me into leo mccary's work because he was kind of a great kind of catholic humanist i think interesting um, yeah so i mean yeah i don't know i'm kind of going off no 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 you make a good field. point and we're going to be talking about those issues here so that that's a very good point i think but maybe at this point it'd be a really good idea to tell people a little bit about um shoot the moonlight out so do you want to give us a little sort of pricey an introduction as you like oh yeah i'll try i'm not i'm not great at it <laughs> introducing I, my you work, know what every time i ask this yeah. question i'm really <laughs> never sure what i get Sometimes people yeah. have it defined and they give you exactly the, the blurb, you know, but most yeah. people that isn't the authors don't think about the book the way that the blurb writer does. No, and I think so you, know, you go people, for it any way you want. People who have like some Hollywood experience tend to be good at pitches and they tend mm. to be good at summing up their work in, in a sentence or two. And I, I don't have that and I'm just not good at it. So excuse me if I ramble, I'll try not to ramble you, for, for too long. Go ahead, sir. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so shoot the moonlight out. It, the title, first off, uh, you know, I got to say that title, which is is great, and I I you know can't congratulate myself for coming up with it because it's the title of a uh, incredible Garland Jeffrey song, right? Yeah. Um, and um, you know, it's just something that I love that song. I love Garland Jeffries. He's somebody who really like Lou Reed and Jim Carroll captures mm. the feeling of New York City for me. Um, in a very specific way. And so I just kind of, you know, I've, I've loved that song for a long time and I wanted to write something with, 
with that as a title. So I kind of started there. And um, this is a, a book set. Um, it opens in 1996. Uh, that's where the, the kind of prologue section is set. And then the, the yeah. bulk of the book takes place in um, the summer of 2001. Um, it's a sprawling cast of characters, kind of, you know, interconnected um, lives in crisis, kind of crashing together. Um, there's a uh, a young kid named Bobby Santavasco, and the book opens with him and his friend um, throwing rocks at cars. This um, this uh, the Belt Parkway where cars are getting off the Belt Parkway, and um, they they hit somebody and wind up causing the, the death of the driver. And that driver winds up being the uh, the daughter of uh, one of the other main characters, Jack Carnaccia, who's mm-hmm. kind of a uh, uh, a meter, a meter reader for Con Ed by day, and a uh, has a kind of neighborhood uh, vengeance for hire business by night, um, and his life is forever changed by by the death of his uh, his yeah. daughter in this in this in this you know accident or or whatever you want to call it. And then from there, the the kind of the book opens out um there are other characters connected to these two characters uh bobby's sister or stepsister lily um, who's a back back in the neighborhood from um from uh college in pennsylvania and uh, a few other characters who um charlie french a gangster who uh kind of wannabe gangster who yeah um, is back in the neighborhood and Again, there's just kind of the this this crashing together of all these kind of lives and crises. So that's that's kind of yeah, that's kind of a short uh, short version, I guess. But no, that makes a lot of sense because actually, it's a very difficult book to talk about in a sense without putting spoilers in there. You know, it's it's very easy yeah. to say something that would tip over, and and it's it's about the situational kind of the thing, the situation that gets created in a way around that, and uh, so you could give too much away. So I think that's a great thing. Let's go back to that little bit you mentioned about Garland Jeffries. Now, he's not going to be particularly familiar to a lot of readers over here in the UK. Um, but he's a, ty- he's, well, I was going to say typical New York. That's a stupid thing to say, but he is a kind of, he's a real New York sound. Yeah. And, but you actually take, it's not so much, you know, sometimes authors could congratulate themselves for coming up with a good title, but you actually take inspiration from the title and the song and the mood in the song. So that's really your starting point. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, you know, again, I, I did, I started with that title and I think I, I was trying to kind of write to the, to the sound of that song and write mm-hmm. to the sound of Garland Jeffries and, you know, kind of just create to that sound and make something that felt like that. It's not, you know, I mean, the, the book is not, based on the song i mean it's yeah, not based no. on you know the lyrics of the song or anything but i i loved um yeah i love the title and i think just kind of the the feeling of it hangs over over the book um mm. and you know there are you know especially kind of specific moments in the book that kind of call back to that um to the to the title i think and to the to the overall tone of the song and yeah garland jeffries is not i don't even it's kind of unfortunate. I don't even know that many people here um, know him as well as they should. He's he's um, when I you know in France they they love him. They they really oh, right. yeah, know yeah. Him. they know him uh, really well over there, yeah. which is great to see. 
but here he's kind of um i feel like he doesn't get the attention he he deserves um some incredible incredible records and i first got into him of course because through through hearing lou reed talk about how much he loved it right yeah, um, yeah. and um so that was kind of my my entry point yeah because he worked with john kale didn't he? i think he worked with springsteen yeah. as well at one point mm-hmm. right but yeah. I, I mean i hadn't heard from him a long time until i saw your title you know and then yeah, started yeah. clicking things back into place it's interesting then so you've kind of got an ambience then then you, well, where does that go in this particular book? Shoot the moonlight out. What happens next? You create a character, or a character comes to you, and that is, is yeah, it Bobby? Uh, is it is it Jack? I mean, I, I think in this book, I, I kind of the opening with Bobby and uh, his friend Zeke throwing rocks at cars coming right. up the Belt Parkway. You know, I, I kind of that was a a, a scene that I kind of had in the back of my mind for for a while um based on just kind of some some real experiences from when i was a kid um and so i started there i started with bobby and, and i really you know i think when i started writing the book i didn't yeah you know, i didn't know i had that that was all i had i had the right. title and i had that um that scene and i kind of you know i think took it from took it from there um and just kind of naturally you know when 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 i realized what the the kind of ripple effect of this um accident was going to be uh i you know i i knew that i would go to um to uh amelia uh, the girl who was in the car I'd, i'd go to her dad and and things just kind of snowballed from from there i think and um people kind of started to reveal themselves characters started to reveal themselves and um that was that was basically how it kind of uh, opened up to me and then i you know I, I think i probably um started making sense of the world of the story a little bit you know i knew, also knew that you know i, I knew it was going to be the nineties, um, for that opening section. And then I settled yeah. for the, the bulk of the book. I, I, I kind of settled on, you know, five years later, five summer years of 2001, later. um, because it felt like this kind of, uh, you know, end, end moment. Um, and I mean, you know, just kind of this, this time that really for obvious reasons sticks out in, in my mind as the end of, of something, um, mm-hmm. you know, of course the characters don't know, that but i know that and it's kind of hanging over the the narrative i think in in some ways that's interesting so the characters kind of drive the whole thing have you ever tried yeah yeah go on sorry oh no 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 you go ahead well i was going to say have you tried planning novels i mean have you sort of started with what for instance sometimes authors say well at least they know the ending and so they know where they're heading in a sense but this sounds very organic I do. I do wind up. I mean, I do wind up planning. I think at some point, uh, I've mm. kind of learned over the years that um, sometimes I will follow bad roads <laughs> for long, long distances, and that's not fun. Um, so, I think um, when I get to a certain point, and when I kind of have the world established a little bit and the characters mm. established, I you know, I think with this book anyway, I, I kind of you know probably wrote. 50 pages or so and then i kind of paused and wrote the a a kind of loose outline you know kind of almost in in short story format for 
where where I was going and where I wanted to go just to save myself the trouble of you know making making bad choices which yeah. I you know which sometimes when you're when you're just kind of winging it that happens and you kind of don't know what's happened for a while and then you got to go back and correct course and it's a pain so um yeah so I, I did that I did that with this book I did that with City of Margins um done that with most most of my my more recent stuff yeah and your name is is Irish Irish Scottish anyway um but you've got an Italian side to your family as well and of course a lot of your characters in the book are Italian and either way around that involves a Catholic upbringing so yeah. <laughs> It's reflected in the characters. I mean, how they feel about religion or how they pull towards religion, you know, their mindset around it, um, how they break away. It's a sort of, there's a thing about a lot of people growing up, I suppose, in the characters in the book is sort of their self-determination, their understanding their own lives. How much of that is, is, is about reflecting your own experience to relate to religion in the book? Um, well, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a, in a heavily Catholic family i grew up with the the italian side of my family mm-hmm. um uh, my dad was was scottish uh, from from scotland um right and came to brooklyn uh you know when he was uh, fairly young um met my mom and and then he was gone when i was you know by by the time i was one or two um so i grew up with my my mom's side of the family and mm-hmm. uh, you know going to church and 12 years of catholic school and and you know it's it's something that i think i I had periods of real real faith real kind of intense devoutness and then um you know periods of uh just totally turning away from it and Mm. rejecting it and so it's it's kind of which i've been in kind of an extended you know bout of that for for many years now but um it's uh but it's something that shaped me and something that, you know, just kind yeah. of inhabits my, you know, my mind. And so many of the artists that, that I kind of am most inspired by, I think, you know, have that same sort of kind of cultural Catholicism or, or whatever you want to call it. I always call it being Catholic haunted, um, mm-hmm. which is just a riff on, on uh, Christ haunted, but they're kind yeah. of different things to me. Um and yeah, so I mean, like, you know, Martin Scorsese and, and, uh, Bruce Springsteen and, you know, Flannery O'Connor and, yeah, yeah. and all of these, these artists who, who've had a big impact on me. Um, you know, I see how that shows up in their work. And I, and I think to me, it's kind of, you know, it's the same thing. It's, it shapes the world of, of my fiction, uh, you know, and that, that struggle with faith and doubt and, you know, having characters who who are, um, you know, very very religious, and and then having mm-hmm. characters who are drifting away from it or who or who are rejecting. I mean, all of the all of that is kind of some version of of me or some version of my my family. You know, just um, it's definitely something that just kind of uh, shapes everything I do. Yeah, you know, kind of subconscious. I like yeah, whether I like it or not, ultimately, you know, I mean, it's yeah, something absolutely. I can't can't get away from, really, because it's um, it's just there, there in the the experience of growing up. It's there in, in school. It's there in the people I knew, and and you know, so it's something mm-hmm. I'm always kind of tangling with. I think. 
But it's, it's interesting, though, because obviously um, the heart of a novel like this is the kind of their moral arguments, you know, the moral debates that the characters get into with themselves. Yeah, and so the way that um, Catholicism or rejection sort of plays into um, that here in your novels uh, is fascinating. I'm going back to something that just struck me, actually. I should have mentioned it the last question, but um, I think you've considered writing in the first person. You've certainly written in the third person. And now we're talking about ensemble. And I'm just wondering what you like about that. Um, you know, I'll tell you why it struck me, you know, because when you said that about when you're writing, you can get kind of, uh, you could go down a wrong avenue. But one of the things that strikes me about it is if you write from several perspectives, you can change quite quickly, can't you? And so you can avoid some of those problems. I mean, if you were writing in the first person and you go down the wrong road, it could be a total disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, if you write from several characters' point of view, you can sort of change your perspective on a scene, for instance. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's entirely uh, accurate. That's definitely one of the things that appeals to me about it. Uh, you know, from a young age, I was really drawn to uh, ensemble works, you know, especially, I mean, you know, there are, there are many, many films and filmmakers that, that jump to mind as kind of being um influential in in terms of of that um mm. so you know i mean uh robert altman was huge huge for me you know discovering right, right. robert altman's movies and alan rudolph is a, is a director i really really love um who kind of works in the same territory um john sales you know and so i think i was just kind of immediately drawn into that that way of of telling and that way of, um, of, you know, existing in the world of a story, mm -hmm. but yeah, in part, in part, because it does, you know, it, it, it doesn't get boring. You know, it generally keeps me kind of on my feet. I can, yeah. if I find something's getting stale, I, I, I jump out and I'm in another, I'm with another character and it, it keeps the story, um, moving. And, and, you know, I, I've never written a novel in, in first person. I've, I've written mm -hmm. only one in, uh, in third person, um, where I, you know, stay just close third with one character, mm -hmm. um, and the other novels have kind of, you know, varied, but, but in the more recent ones, I've definitely kind of opened it up and, and had bigger, bigger casts and more POVs. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's just a way of telling that that tends to, tends to make sense to me. Mm -hmm. No, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And we've been talking about noir. It's because I think your work falls into that sort of that overall category. And the thing about it is this kind of suits that noir. And one of the things is this idea of a confluence of, of events and characters and how they yeah. all come together, you know, and you, you can't have that if you haven't got these different perspectives where you can take it away and you can hide, for, you know, certain issues in different areas. And then all of a sudden it all comes together in this big crash at the end, if you like. Um, yeah. Sometimes, what well, I don't know what the real word is for it, but sometimes I call it a kind of runaway plot, you know, with events and everything yeah. just overtake the characters and it, it becomes, uh, and then they get interweaving at the end again. So I think the crucial element or crucial element of the books is Brooklyn, obviously. So yeah. I want to take a little look at that. I, I, I don't know whether this will work, but try and break it down a little bit in the way you see things. And uh, I was wondering the difference between William Boyle's Brooklyn and the real Brooklyn. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I, I think it's, it's, a it's a combination of, uh, the place as I knew it, 
growing up. Right. Uh, but but also uh, in the places I, you know, continue to know it, um, even though I haven't lived there full time in a while. Um, but also kind of a, a mythical Brooklyn or a, a mm. kind of, you know, even a, a Brooklyn of the the imagination or Brooklyn of my imagination. Um, a kind of, I think Hubert Selby was called it kind of a spiritual landscape. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's my, my Brooklyn for sure. It's not, I don't, it's probably not going to be, um, true to everybody's experience of, of the place. Um, I, coming back to Alan Rudolph again, mm. who's a director I really love. I remember seeing, seeing somewhere where people talked about his kind of Los Angeles of the imagination. And, and I think that's kind of, that's kind of how I feel about, um, the, the Brooklyn that I've, I've kind of created in these books that it's there, there is very much, you know, grounding in the real, real, mm-hmm. um, place that I knew, but there are also just kind of, uh, it's, it's a place that, that is invented from, you know, my kind of romantic yeah. m- mythological emotional. notion yeah. of the place and emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's it's kind of a combination of all of mm-hmm. all of those things. It's interesting because as an outsider, you see Brooklyn as a big entity, the same way you see Manhattan as a big entity. And one of the things that's very true about your book is it's incredibly intimate. Um, I mean, it's like a village. You know, it's a it's a community with a shared culture, and that. I mean, is that the way you see it? Yeah, and you know, I think that was one of the things I always, especially growing up there. You know, it's kind of my neighborhood. I grew up on the border of kind of two neighborhoods, Gravesend and Bensonhurst and Southern Brooklyn, not far from Coney Island. And especially when I was growing up there in the eighties and and nineties, you know, I felt, I felt like I was, I mean, Manhattan, Manhattan's only, you know, six, seven miles away, Mm -hmm. 40 minute train ride, but it felt like a world away, you know, and, and it's a, it's kind of an end of the line neighborhood. It's, it's, you know, not a neighborhood where, at least when I was growing up where anything interesting was happening in terms of, you know, culture. I mean, there weren't clubs where you could, I mean, there was maybe one place where you could go see music. And even, even by the time I was growing up, that was kind of gone. There there were dying movie theaters. It was very much when I was growing up, especially kind of a dying neighborhood. It's, it's changed now. It's not a dying neighborhood anymore. It's kind of thriving, but um, it's, uh, you know, to me it felt like a small town in a lot of ways and yeah um you know i didn't see that reflected in a lot of the the new york fiction i was i was reading yeah, I see what you mean. from the um you know contemporary new york fiction mm, i mean i mm. saw it kind of you know an older an older um fiction from the 30s and 40s and 50s but um i wasn't seeing it in contemporary stuff and so you know really um, one of the first times I thought about kind of writing about it this in this way was reading Larry Brown, you know, the great Oxford, Mississippi right. writer, and probably, you know, loving his work is the reason why, why I moved down here. Um, when I read his books, I thought, man, I want to write about Brooklyn in this way. I mean, because this yeah, yeah. is how Brooklyn feels to me. It, it, it almost feels like small you know this this my neighborhood anyway kind of small and, and narrow and and you know you feel um kind of 
you can feel kind of trapped. Um, and, and New York city is, you know, can be the, the most kind of brutally lonely place in the world. Mm. Um, and so I think that there, there are so many connections to make to kind of small town existence. Um, even though it's clearly, you know, that it's not really that at all, but it can feel like that. Yeah. I know that makes a lot of sense. In a sense, what we're talking about here, and this is, is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up, was the idea of creating this landscape. It's almost like you've got a landscape in your mind because then characters can go from one book to another book. And it's, there are no sequels here or anything like that. But you, you also have this thing where you can go back in for a time. And, yeah. you know, the, there's a sensibility or about the place that will haunt the next novel, even though, you know, it's not about the same topic. So it, it's almost yeah. like world building, the kind of thing they talk about with um, science fiction novels and that, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the things I've always kind of responded to in, in storytelling, just kind of, I feel like every time, you know, I, I create a fictional bar, or every time a, a minor character passes through a story, like that's, you know, that's something that could come back or that's mm. someone that could come back. Or you right. know, there's been a lot of stuff I've kind of, return to throughout throughout the books places that you know either you know are, are just uh, imaginary or or fictional representations of real places and my second my second book the lonely witnesses is, is um about a character who just kind of shows up briefly in my first mm. book Gravesend, and she was just somebody i couldn't stop thinking about and i just was you know i was just dedicated a whole book to her um and so, I mean, that's, yeah, that's part of the, again, part of the joy of it for me. And, and yeah, like you said, moving between time kind of allows you to, to see different pasts for these characters, you know, imagine futures for them. And it, mm. yeah, it's very much, it's very much kind of world building. It's yeah. It's almost like there's a shared psychology um, in certain places, isn't it? You know, like for instance, yeah. the incident you described at the start with the, with the stone throwing, that could be something that in the future other people would look on, you know, and it would still be something that was in the living memory. So uh, in a future book, in a way it could haunt characters in the way that real events haunt people uh, in the real world. Yeah. Is it different with modern Brooklyn? Um, I mean, young people, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm old, but young people seem to be a lot more like each other in a sense. (laughs) There's a lot of tech. um, There's a gentrification. I don't know how relevant that is, but is it changing? You know, is it sort of like the world, you know, new, is it vanishing sort of thing? And is that good or bad? Cause you said, you know, the place has um, improved a lot in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, my neighborhood, my part of Brooklyn has, has changed in really, uh, interesting ways. I think it's mm. not, um, you know, it's not part of that kind of, it's not one of those neighborhoods that's been, gentrified and you know it's not um i mean one of the weirdest things about living in mississippi for so long now is i know all these people from mississippi who've moved to brooklyn to move to brooklyn and are living in places that you know neighborhoods that when i was growing up were not places they would have been living you know and um that's been interesting to see but my neighborhood my part of brooklyn is mostly um changed in really really interesting ways it, as i said when i was when i was a kid it was kind of a dying 
mm. Italian American neighborhood, and you know people were leaving for Long Island, Staten Island, New Jersey, and um, things were closing, and it was just kind of um, felt like it was kind of the end mm. uh, of it. And really, probably you know by the late '90s into the early 2000s, it, it started to become predominantly a Chinese American neighborhood, and and now it's like the second biggest Chinatown in New York City, and it's just thriving. And there's all sorts of incredible restaurants, and um, so it's it's been interesting to see that change. And it's a, a really, I think, a, a much more lively, uh, interesting neighborhood in in a lot of ways now. Um, and it's you know it's it's interesting to see how kind of one of the things I'm really fascinated with is kind of the the remnants of the old neighborhood and how they kind of blur into the new yeah, yeah. the new mm. neighborhood. Um, and you know, because some of some of the people obviously are still there. A lot of kind of old older people and kind of older um, crumbling houses, and you know, and um, that's been fascinating. And my mom's yeah, you know, my mom's still there, and you know. Um, that's all been really, really interesting to see how that's kind of taken shape. Right. I wish the neighborhood kind of was like it is now when I was growing up because it's it's a little bit more exciting and lively. Um, felt like, yeah, just kind of. Yeah, you never know, though. You might have got distracted by something else <laughs> and then you wouldn't be a writer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's look at some of the characters then. I mean, we'll start with Bobby, actually. We talked about what Bobby did when he was 14 years old and it, it's it's sort of a it's a major event it's an insider it sets him on a path i'm just wondering do you ever think what would happen if he hadn't thrown the rock or is it more that bobby's actually a, a tragedian you know he's a character who has the seeds of his own downfall yeah i mean i think i think i uh, that's kind of the that's the stuff i love to think about really mm. i mean and i think that's the kind of stuff that um you know kind of going in inside the character's mind and, and um, accessing that interiority allows you to kind of wonder about, but he, you know, I don't, I'm trying to put myself in, in, um, in the moment where I was kind of writing that scene. Cause I don't know that I even knew exactly what was going to happen <clears throat> after right. he threw the rock. I mean, I knew, I knew something bad was going to happen, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I knew, the extent of it in that moment. So I think, you know, the minute I kind of decided that this was going to be kind of a, a, a thing that was very bad and changed, changed the, the course of, of who he was and changed the course of his life. Mm. Um, then I, I think I kind of started thinking about him as just kind of yeah, doomed and, and a, a really tragic kind of character who's, who's trying, he's not really a bad person but is is you know unable to come back from being haunted by, by yeah. this bad decision or this stupid decision well it's an interesting point about that the first thing is right as 14 year old kids we all did something really stupid that could have gone somewhere yeah. tragic and actually we luckily it didn't and most of us are in that situation one of the things that struck me about him was though that um Bobby, like anybody has ambitions he wants to fall in love he wants to do all the things everybody else wants to do in life but it's actually the opportunity you know, if he was in a different place, if he was in a different community, he might have got that opportunity. And it's yeah. fascinating to kind of think about those issues. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, for me, a lot of, a lot of times it's kind of, um, 
that that opening is really rooted in a, a kind of real experience from from when I was a kid when uh, we would go down me and me and my friends would go down to that same spot and and throw um, as as Bobby and Zeke do throw little cups of ketchup and mustard right. <laughs> at, at cars <laughs> until like, you know, it was a very short lived thing until um, a, a guy got out and chased us and yelled at us and we never did it again and nobody got hurt. But I was always kind of haunted by that. Like how, how, how close you, yeah. you know, you come in moments like that to that sort of decision you can't get away from. And that will change that will trap you. That will, ruin you and you know and, and when that happens it is it is hard to uh, come back from it and then so i think bobby is kind of probably some you know in my in, in my mind anyway some version of either me or one of my friends that could have could have mm. been um so i put a lot of that into him i think yeah because i mean if we then talk about jack i mean he had a terrible time too he loses his daughter which is the the thing that really is the the final thing that sets him off yeah. and he goes down a bad road for, for what he thinks is kind of right reasons. You know, he's got a, yeah. there are more moral issues there, um, but he thinks he's taking the right road, but then he meets up with Lily. And I think it's one of the fascinating things in the book is that relationship that he develops with Lily. I mean, is it almost like a surrogate daughter? Yeah. That relationship. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that was one of the things that I kind of, I don't know that I um, anticipated it until, you know, until I had those characters kind of encounter each other. But to me, the book really winds up being kind of a, a almost father, surrogate father, surrogate daughter mm -hmm. love story between, between Jack and Lily, um, which really the, the heart of the, the whole thing to me. Um, and, you know, I loved, I loved being able to, to kind of write, write that for both of them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Does that reflect something that perhaps, uh, Gravesend for instance, was a very dark book. Yeah. Uh, and this, I mean, is there more hope and redemption in this novel? I suppose that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think, um, I mean, Willie Vlotten's one of my favorite, favorite writers and, right. you know, yeah, yeah. kind of traffics in sad bleak stuff too but you know one of the things that always amazes me about about his books is how he can take you to these dark places and, and still bring the hope somehow mm. and and i think you know uh with gravesend gravesend definitely kind of was the most pessimistic nihilistic book I, i've i've written and probably hopefully maybe will ever ever write because i think um yeah, I think there's been a, an arc in the last couple of books trying to trying to bring some hope to these characters and, and you know, in the form usually of of relationships or mm -hmm. um, somebody kind of coming along and and showing uh, somebody who's who's been down that there are ways of surviving mm -hmm. and, and existing in the world. Um even when you've kind of been been beat down, and so I think that's been something I've been kind of developing, especially over the last three books, and, and maybe mm -hmm. maybe this is the one where it kind of is kind of most most present. Yeah, and I think I, it shows up a lot in Lily and also Francesca. Who, yeah, yeah. I won't say more, but you know, Francesca and Bobby, and and so how that goes. 
Yeah, I think people will have to read the book. I think I was about to say too much there. Um, you write tough women a lot of the time, but these are very sensitive, I think, this time, actually. But then you also write a lot of small characters, and they're, um, you manage to get them very quickly. You manage to make small characters feel real and feel like a part of something much bigger. I mean, does that just come naturally? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's something I just kind of always responded to as a fan, something I love. And, and so it's something I, I love to do. Um, you know, I, I love, I love um, stories within stories. And so I think, um, you know, to, to be able to kind of quickly establish a character through you know, something they're saying or, or doing, you know, is this whole other story under the surface? Um, and, you know, that's, that's just kind of one of the, the joys of um, making fiction to me. Mm. Um, so uh, I think it's probably something I've kind of developed over, over time, but it, it, yeah, it comes, I think it comes from just my, my love of that and, and other people's work. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. What's next for you then? It's always the weird question that you ask writers because you're talking <laughs> about the new book, and of course you're onto another project though. Yeah, no, I mean I, I uh, I've been working on a book for for a while that I'm not I'm kind of uh, kind of in a difficult place with right now, so I I'm trying to trying to finish it up and and um, see if it floats. <laughs> um, and I hope it does. I mean, I've been really excited about it uh, and I've been re really actually very, very excited about it for a while. And then I kind of, this wall, this week I, I hit a little bit of a wall with it and kind of deflated a little bit. And um, right. so I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, finish that and feel good about it. And, uh, and I've got another thing that I've kind of started on and um, this other story that's kind of been knocking at the door for a while that I want to, dive right into um as soon as that other one is is done so i don't know i don't have anything really solid i can say but i'm kind of superstitious about talking about no fair enough I'm, i mean if yeah if you're done, superstitious but, about it don't worry about it <laughs> it's a funny but, uh, thing you know I'm, I'm not a particularly superstitious person but then there are some things that you just get in your head and once they're yeah, there yeah. that's it isn't it i know i'm not i'm not superstitious either but i, do, I really do feel like sometimes when I jump the gun and talking about something, it kind of like jinxes it in, in mm. some way. <laughs> um, so I don't know. So my wife thinks that is really dumb, but I, uh, I don't know. I just can't, I can't, uh, you can't, can't shake it see yeah. that way. Yeah. Okay. And last thing, sir. Um, how about a recommendation? And I don't mind if it's a film or a book or whatever. Oh man. Um, Jeez, I'm trying to think of. I've been well. I, I'm reading this book now. Well, I I will say, I was at a book event doing this book event with Eli Craner the other night. Yeah. His his novel Don't Know Tough, which is out uh, in the U.S. this week. I don't know. It's. Uh, I think it's coming out in the U.K. I'll okay. certainly make a note of that. I, actually, to be honest, I want to interview him. I want to have him interviewed for the show. Yeah. So, so I would. I would definitely recommend that. And I'm kind of. I'll mean, put it I, in the program notes anyway. It's hard for me to, I'm, I'm reading this really big book right now called, this is actually the UK edition of this book, the Outside the Gates of Eden by Lewis Shiner. Um, right. It's like a 975 page, this big sprawling character driven novel um, set between the, the early to mid sixties and, and the 
late 2000 teens. Um, right. And it's, it's blow, it's just blowing me away. It's really good, but I'm 300 pages into it. I have like 675 pages left to go. Um, so highly, highly recommend that it's this kind of this great American, I mean, this great American novel kind of novel. Right. I, well, I don't know that one, but I, again, I'll put it in a program notes for people. Sorry. I did say that was the last question, but I have one more now. Oh, just yeah, yeah. occurred to me. I was thinking about, um, well, how do you feel about, you know, you're a big film fan and that, but how do you feel now about the representation on television of things like the wire and that, where you get these, it's, it's like a novelization on television, if you like. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Wire and Deadwood and The Sopranos are, yeah, yeah. you know, the, I mean, they're as influential to me as just about anything. Mm. Um, you know, I alternate between which of those three is my favorite, but um, I love them all very much. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of my ideas of story about storytelling also come from come from those. Um, those shows in particular, those, those creators, the, the day, the other Davids, David Chase, David Milch and, mm. uh, and David Simon. So, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of shows I, I respond to, um, still, but nothing quite on, on the level of those, those right. three. So I don't know. I mean, Breaking Bad, I loved too. Um, and there have been some other others along the way that I've really um, loved. But to me, those are kind of the most novel, novelistic. Mm. Um, They're the groundbreaking shows. ones. Yeah. I mean, those are the ones that really, I mean, they really do feel like novels. And, and those writers, you know, I mean, David Simon was the one who started bringing novelists into the writer's mm. room and david mm. david milch is just you know he's i think a, a really kind of a novelist or a poet at heart yeah. um yeah. and and you know and, and david chase i mean yeah the sopranos is just one of the great kind of you know character i, I mean for for me you know one of the the great kind of funny dark violent mm. <laughs> character driven italian american studies you know so um, those, yeah, those all had a huge impact on me. I, I find that some of the stuff that I watch now, I, 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 there, it's a little bit more kind of muddled. Um, the that the kind of ways of of telling um, mm. th- those those creators all seem to have a clear vision for how to do what they were doing. Where some shows I watch now, and I, I just don't feel like they should just be movies. Should yeah, shouldn't be eight episodes or ten episodes. That's, there is a problem, actually, with this thing where they have got to have season two and season three. Yeah. Sometimes stories are in and of themselves, and that's it. It works. And then yeah. you go into these crazy things where you've got to try and reinvent something or move it on in a way that it just wasn't designed to. And I think yeah. Yeah, as, as viewers and that, we can tell that, can't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and also, I mean, the other the other day, I'm only talking about David's right now, but I already mentioned I'm a huge David Lynch fan, and I think yeah, to yeah. me kind of, Twin Peaks: The Return, the third season, was kind of this, this, the. After that, I had trouble watching any other t- TV shows. It yeah. was this high watermark for, for the the, the format, um, and then I've never kind of quite recovered from from that. <laughs> okay, I think on that point we'll leave it. <laughs> Bill, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, thanks so much, Paul. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for having me.
Sometimes this job is just an absolute pleasure, and that was really fascinating, so thanks to Bill William Boyle for that. Shoot the Moonlight Out is available from No Exit Press in paperback and ebook, and if you follow the link on the program page, it'll take you to their website. Also, if you get a chance, take a look at some of the recommendations, because the film, the books, the music, they're all really important in Boyle's work. I'll be back with another interview very shortly, but in the meantime, thank you for listening, and bye for now.